Well, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Heath Haynes. I'm one of the elders at the bridge. Uh, grateful to be with you again. Uh, just wanted to give you a, a heads up on uh, one of the changes we're making. Uh, we're going to change a little bit of how we're using these videos. I've typically been adding kind of some updates at the beginning. And we just really want to allow these videos to kind of focus more just on the teaching. So we'll be kind of pulling away from having those updates in the video. So I just want to encourage you to make sure to, to read the emails we send to you, maybe watch the other update videos, just so that you can be in the know, so that we can continue to kind of live and do ministry of the gospel in unity and really see again, God glorified in this season. So with that being said, let me go ahead and pray and we'll get to our teaching today. All right, let's pray. Um, God, I just want to surrender this time to you now, Lord. So surrender this time in that I am recording it, as well as the time that, that each of these are listening uh, to this teaching. God, I pray that you would um, prepare our hearts. I pray that you would do a work in us, Lord, that, um, Lord, that regardless of our, our kind of background, regardless of our day, regardless of, of um, even our belief, Lord, that you would work in us right now lord that you would prime our hearts our minds and our lives lord to encounter you to account encounter your living truth your transforming truth and lord that it would um bring uh, freedom and fruit in our lives as well as glory to you so lord i surrender this time lord i pray that even through this technology and kind of digital avenues that you would knit our hearts and our souls together and you would bring unity lord uh you know, just in our hearts and in our purpose, all in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me go ahead and just read our text in full. We're going to be in Philippians 3, 12 through 21 today as we continue to study through Philippians. So we're going to read this uh, part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It says this. You'll see it right here on the screen. It says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, where are we? You know, Paul picks up mid-thought. I mean, he just comes out of it. Not that I've already obtained. So what's he referring to? If you uh, if you were in with us last week, uh, he's, he's coming straight out of that thought. And last week, Paul was testifying to his greatest desire to know and live in all the glorious riches that come in knowing and experiencing the revelation of the resurrected Christ. 
of, of understanding and experiencing the glory of Christ himself as well as the power of that in his life. And he said last week, I'm striving to live in the power of the resurrection. That's what he's referring to. So this section, Paul wants to be clear. He said, he's basically saying like, hey, that's what I'm striving to, but I'm not there yet. So that's, that's what I know. But he says, this is what I do know. So I'm not there yet, but this is what I do know. So that's where we're at today. So the big idea for today is this. It's the simple thought, simple statement, but with huge implications. The promise of Jesus is the purpose of our lives. The promise of Jesus is the purpose of our lives. So just like last week, Paul acknowledges the work of, redemp- of redemption accomplished in Christ and his desire to live in a way that is worthy and evidences what Christ has done. He wants to live in a way of life that just as much as he holds hope and he's grateful and finds so much meaning and value in the promise of his salvation, he wants his life to reflect that worth. You know, it's the running the race not it's the running the race that matters. You know, that if you desire to win the race, then you have to run away run the race in a way that might win the race. You have to prepare for the race. And so we come into this today with just this first promise. As we think about the promise of Jesus is the purpose of our lives, here's, here's, here's the promise. As we look at that text in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, is that I am in Christ today, and I will be with Christ forever. I'm in Christ today, and I will be with Christ forever. Man, what a promise. You see, he says, I strive to make it my own because what? Because Christ has already made me his own. Man, what a glorious invitation. What a gift. So what? So when we think about Christ making us his own, we're talking about belonging into Christ. We're talking about being in Christ. And so let's just unpack that really quickly. What does it mean to be in Christ? And first and foremost, it is that we are in his righteousness. And you know, coming back to last week in Philippians 3.9, Paul talked about it. He says, I have a righteousness, but it's not a righteousness that is my own. It's not one that I have achieved because that's not enough. I have sinned. I am a sinner. I have come up short. My righteousness is as filthy rags compared to the righteousness of a holy God in Christ. So what he's saying is that in my faith in Christ, I have a righteousness that's not my own, but the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus. And so just to be really clear, once again, what we're talking about is that what our salvation is, it is not just uh, this, this ascension of belief, but it is a reality of our position before a holy God. And that when we place our faith in Christ, what we're saying is that I am a sinner, I've come up short, I, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, am, uh, I am not righteous enough. And what we're saying is we trust God's provision of salvation in Jesus, that Jesus took on our sin and the consequence of our sin and death and on the cross and as he died, and then he conquered it in his resurrection. And we're saying, I trust the way in which God has worked to atone and save me. And in that belief, in that trust, in that faith, In that moment, God no longer sees us as sinners. He no longer sees us as unrighteous, but he sees us as his son. He sees us with the righteousness of his son, Jesus. 
That's the glorious truth of the gospel. That's our salvation. So first and foremost, to be in Christ is to be in his righteousness. We are no longer measured by the merit of our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. That's the faith of salvation, trusting what Jesus has done. Next, to be in Christ is to be kept in his promise, right? In our salvation, we we are made to belong. This is about belonging. It's about being made new. We are kept in our newness. We are a new creation. We are kept in our victory because in Christ's victory, we are victorious. We are kept in our freedom. We cannot be taken away from the freedom we have been delivered to. We are kept in an assuredness of the last day, right? We are in Christ today. We will be with Christ forever. And so because Christ is the one who accomplished our salvation, Christ is the the source and anchor of our hope, and he is the eternal one, his promise delivered is everlasting. So that is... That's what it is to be in Christ as well, to be kept in his promise. And the next, to be in Christ, also means that his life and purpose is now our life and purpose. His life and purpose is now your life and purpose because you are in Christ. You are enveloped into his being, into his purpose and existence. And so, again, we don't replace him, but we we are becoming more like him and we are drawn into why he came, right? To seek and save the lost, to glorify God, to, to proclaim the message of redemption and God's work in him. And so to be in Christ is to be in his righteousness, to be kept in his promise, as well as to be enveloped in his purpose. So again, the promise is in the purpose. Another thing we see in these three verses, uh, the promises of our purpose exist in two tenses of time. And to be clear, there are three, there are four tenses of time, right? We have past, present, future, and then the fourth is eternity, eternal, eternality. And Paul says, I forget, he says, forgetting what lies behind. He's like, this is what I know, forgetting what lies behind, straining for what lies ahead, right? And so, so we see this picture of, of the two tenses of time that we have a concern with. Let me unpack that a little bit. So first off, he says, we forget about what lies behind. We are not burdened by our past. We're not defined by our sin. We are not defined by our failures. Remember what Romans 8.1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. We are no longer condemned. We are whole. We are innocent. We are adopted. We are made new. We belong. And so we cannot be defined any longer because we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. We're accepted as we are in Christ, and he is making us more into his likeness. And guess what? That's every day. So again, we can forget what lies behind. We do not have to to live in some, some condemned, arrested state, or even in some kind of lost nostalgia. We forget that because of what Christ has done. Today, we get to live with peace and confidence and gratitude. And so we see that what lies behind. And he also says, uh, and straining for what lies ahead in the upward call of God in Christ. So again, we're not talking about tomorrow here, but rather we're talking about forever. Straining for what lies ahead is not that I'm straining for my five-year plan. It's I'm straining for eternity. Again, this is eschatological. And, and if that's a new word for you, that's what we're talking about. Eschatological is those the things that concern the final destiny of humanity. 
And so we're talking about Paul saying, I forget what lies ahead, and I strain for my eternal hope. I, 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 am, I am concerned and consumed with my eternal hope. And that in my present hope today of what Christ has accomplished in me, knowing that I am accepted today, I am whole today, I am free today, I also know that there is a day to come when all culmination will come to an end. Again, we've said this so many times throughout Philippians because it's such a common thread, but that there is a day of hope coming where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. And as Tolkien says, where everything that is sad becomes untrue. That is what it is to, to strain to, for what lies ahead in the upward call of God in Christ. And it is that our lives have this upward trajectory of glorifying God all the more as we, as we become uh, closer and closer to that eternity and deeper and deeper in our understanding and experience. And so we see that the two tenses of time that is our concern is the present and eternity, but this, this other spaces of past and, and our, our, our temporal future are not in our hands. Those lead to, to condemnation and fear. We're actually going to take a turn here. We're going to go into some story time. Literally, we're going to read for a bit. So I just want to prepare you about five minutes of reading ahead. We'll have the text on the screen. We're going to be reading from a book by C.S. Lewis. Um, man, one of the greatest apologetics um, you know, of the, of the 20th century. Um, he, he was an atheist come to Christ, uh, wrote some amazing books. Uh, this book, uh, Screwtape Letters, is, is a fictional account of uh, this letter correspondence between two demons, two of Satan's workers, right, if you will. Uh, Uncle Screwtape, who is a seasoned mentoring demon, and then writing to his nephew Wormwood, who is just coming into uh, being a, a demon with assignments. He's got his first client, as they call it, which means a, a, a person who is a new believer in Christ. And his job is to trip that, that person up, to deceive them, to distract them. Again, they can't overtake the work of Christ. Christ is victorious, but they can do everything they can to distract and trip up. And so it's this mentoring, admonishing, instructing kind of correspondence between Screwtape and uh, Wormwood. So to be clear, when you hear the word enemy in this, it is speaking of our loving, glorious God. Uh, when you hear the client, it is speaking of, uh, again, a Christ follower who is new in their faith. And uh, again, this is two demons writing. So settle in. We're going to read letter 15 uh, from Screwtape Letters, and you'll have it on your screen to read along with me. We're going to pick it up uh, after the first paragraph. It says this. <clears throat> It says, the humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience experience which our enemy, which again, reminder, that's God, has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, 
bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature, and to that extent resembles eternity. It is far better to make them alive, to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, love to the present, fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty, though its material is borrowed from the future. The duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is not straw splitting. He, again God, does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that is his vocation, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by so doing we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. It follows then, in general, and other things being equal, that it is better for your patient, again, the client, to be filled with anxiety or hope, it doesn't matter much which about this war than for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. And to be clear, C.S. Lewis is writing this in the midst of World War II, and the perspective of the war being referenced is World War II. You... Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he is concerned with the present, but because he has persuaded himself that the future is going to be agreeable. As long as that is the real course of his tranquility, his tranquility will do us good because it is only piling up more disappointment and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. 
If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and is praying for the, the, the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present, because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Here again, our philological arm has done good work. Try, try the word complacency on him. But of course, it is most likely that he is living in the present for none of these reasons but simply because his health is good and he is enjoying his work. The phenomenon would then be merely natural. All the same, I should break it up if I were you. No natural phenomenon is really in your in our favor. And anyway, why should the creature be happy? Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Our opportunity is the present. Our hope is our eternal work of salvation in Christ. If you are in Christ, and therefore your concern and opportunity, which by the way, this is not what you are to work for, this is what's, what God's truth tells us. If you are in Christ, and therefore your concern and opportunity is peace and gratitude for today, and hope and assurance for eternity, and the rest you trust to the sovereign grace of God in Christ, if all that's true, which, which God says it is in Christ, how does that change how you see yourself? How does that change how you see others? How does that change your life? So we say our purpose is in our promise. The next few verses show, show us how that is true. Let's read uh, Philippians 3, 15 through 19. It says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What I want to unpack here is this truth from these verses. Hear this, it says, I want you to hear this. We are not called to be perfect, but we are set apart. Verses 15 through 16 show us the reality of the life lived in the grace of God in Christ. It says, And what Paul says, he's like, you know, when he says, for those that are mature, they should think this way. He's saying this is how you ought to think in every way. This is how every Christ follower should be growing into thinking. This should be the reality because, again, it's the reality of Christ. But then as he says, uh, but, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He says, but you will lack understanding. You will find your, there will be times where you don't think this way. But then he says, God will reveal that also to you. God is not surprised by that. He's not put off by your humanity. And what we see here is this invitation to bring your lacking of understanding to God, to daily surrender and say, God, work in me, transform me. And what we see is that this God of love and grace and patience and benevolence he does not reject us in our humanity. Again, it's our rebellion that's the problem. It's our denial, our unbelief. 
but God is promising to provide exactly what you need. This takes me to what James uh, taught in James 1, 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that is the understanding that comes from God, let him ask God. Again, if you don't understand God's promises, if you don't understand how God works, what he wants, he says, let him ask God. And then this God, God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So let him ask the one who gives generously without reproach. And what we're seeing is that God will not shame us for asking for the very things that we need. He will not shame us for being a people that are that are following him along the way, being sanctified, being set apart, being changed, being transformed in the meantime. So we are not called to be perfect, but we should be evidencing that we are set apart. Verses 18 and 19 calls out the, 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 the travesty of those who do not evidence being set apart because what Paul's referring to in 18 and 19 is that people who would call themselves Christians, they would align themselves with being a people of the way, but they're living lives that give no evidence. They're living lives that look no different than those around them that have, that have not encountered the glorious, redeeming, transforming work of Jesus that do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. You hear the sadness is with tears and compassion and brokenness that he sees this miss. And so he's saying we should live life that evidence that we are set apart. Why? Because we are set apart. Again, I strive to make it my own because Christ has already made me his own. So we think about what it is to be set apart. So set apart is not a matter of proximity. That's a mistake the church has made, is that we are to stay away from those who might taint the holy image of God. Guess what? No one can do that. And the church is meant to be the image of God, and we are meant to be in the mix, in the midst of the world. So to be set apart is not a matter of proximity where we pull away from, because the incarnational model and example of Jesus says we go into where the need is just as he did. Instead, being set apart is a, is a matter of identity. Again, we are God's people set apart in Christ for a holy purpose. So to strive for what lies ahead as one who has been set apart is to follow Jesus. That's the striving part, is to walk with Christ, abiding with him, relating with him, and choosing to follow his will and his way to imitate Jesus. Again, a disciple is a follower. We are called disciples of Christ. We are called to make disciples of Christ. We are to imitate Jesus and to invite others to do the same. And this is what we see here. This is where we see that the promise of Jesus is also the purpose of our lives. Quite naturally, Paul's in his thought of flowing out of this glorious promise that Christ has delivered to us. He says, so imitate us and imitate others that have taught what we taught because, again, we have Jesus we have been changed by him. We are following him. So we're also meant to invite others to imitate us as we imitate Jesus. It's the natural part because we are set apart. We are made new. And so to imitate necessitates a few things. So first off, if we are going to say, hey, imitate me and I imitate you, first off, we must be in a relational community. Again, we have people around us every day, but when we think about our purpose in Christ, what we talk about, like, we don't want to imitate to destruction. We don't want to imitate to distraction from the glory of God. We want to imitate 
those that would lead us to glorifying God, to reveling in the glories of his grace in Christ. So we must be in a relational community, aka the church, aka a local congregation, the body of Christ who God has knit your hearts together with. And we have to to do our best to make ourselves available and to live in that relational community. So that's the first thing that imitating necessitates. Uh, next is to be humble and vulnerable enough to admit you can learn from others and find someone to imitate. Step out and just latch on to someone that you see you see the love of Christ in. You see them surrendering daily, walking in humility and grace as best as they know. Also, be courageous enough to see that God has done a work in you and give other people access to your life so that they can imitate you. It is not perfection that makes you worth imitating. It is the, the gospel of grace and Jesus working in your life that makes you worth imitating. Being confessional and humble and surrendering and, and seeing that work in your life. And then lastly, uh, something that imi to imitate necessitates is to be worth imitating as you are able to today. And all I mean by that is that what is worth imitating you is Christ in you, because after all, Christ in us is our hope of glory, and it is only Christ in us that is worth imitating. So pursue Jesus. Let your light shine. That is worth, worth imitating. So again, strive to make it your own because Christ has already made you his own. Follow Jesus. Invite others to do the same with you. As you learn, you can also invite others in. There is no graduation day to when you are suddenly able to invite someone to follow you. It is the day that Jesus changes you. Just as the blind man in John 9 said, I don't know who he is, but I was no, I know I was blind and now I can see. Or the woman at the well of your, you know, in, in, in John 4 who was kind of an outcast. And then she ran to the whole city saying, hey, this come here, this man who's told me everything I ever knew about myself. That's all they had, and that's all. And so there is no graduation day. If Christ has changed you, you get to say, "Follow me as I follow Christ," just as Paul has done. Because we're totally made new in Christ, and our lives are consumed in being set apart by that identity in Christ, the real opportunity here is a holistic, all a whole life evidencing of the glories of God in Christ in yours and my lives to those around us, both in the body of Christ as well as the world. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this. It says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I read that because I just want to call attention to a present opportunity as we live in this kind of this pandemic reality and all the implications that have come from that. Obviously, you're watching this video. This, this means that our way of gathering has changed. And I was listening to a podcast and um, uh, one of the leaders in the in kind of the American church today uh, named Jeff Christofferson was, was pointing this out, you know, and he said, um, you know, we see here that, you know, the, the light of the gospel is not meant to be hid under a basket, right? That's the picture here. You don't light a light and then hide it, right? And he's saying that in largely in the American church, the light of the gospel has been hid under the basket of a Sunday morning church gathering in a building kind of tucked away behind the walls. 
I mean, I know in our church, I am grateful. I know that the hearts of our people is that we would we would live lives that proclaim the goodness of God and Jesus. But at the same time, I know that there is still there is still this large emphasis of Sunday morning. And Jeff Christopherson was talking about just kind of that tendency in the church that we have relegated the proclamation to the gospel of the gospel to those wall in those walls on Sunday morning. And he was just pointing out. He said, you know, thankfully. In this, in the midst of all this happened in COVID-19 and God's glorious grace and the way that he works, that basket has been smashed. The gospel, the light of the gospel of Jesus has been released. And we have been cut loose from that. And again, praise God, we're still finding ways together. We have to. Again, let's think through what we're already learning. But in this time, I want to ask how can you, how can we live as the bright shining light of the gospel today as you have been released to, and, and as you have been released and the gospel has been released through you? We have an opportunity in this time. The basket's been smashed. We're not tucked behind walls. Yes, we're gathering at homes. Prayerfully, we're finding ways right now. I want to encourage you. Think of people in your life that need to know the light of the gospel of Jesus, that need to hear the good news of the hope in Christ. How today can we let the light of Jesus shine in and through us? Philippians 3, 20-21 goes on to say, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's much to say about this passage, but this is a bookend to where we started. And Paul's emphasizing this promise. It's the same thing we started with. I want to remind us, I am in Christ today and I will be with Christ forever. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to the kingdom of God. We belong to our holy God and King. We belong to our ruler, King Jesus, who is gracious and generous and sacrificial and benevolent and good. And all that occurs under his rule and reign is good. We are citizens of heaven. We have been saved in Christ. We are redeemed, but we also await the glorious day of his returning. His work of transforming us. We are transformed and being transformed. There will be a day when we are released from all the confinements that encumber us. But in today we live in the present hope. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is working in us. So today you're listening to this and you would say, I, I don't know if I'm in Christ. Or maybe you say, I know I'm not in Christ. You would say, I'm, I I'm, I'm not there. I haven't made that confession. I haven't trusted my life and salvation to Jesus. I want to invite you. You can. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. We are all sinners. We've all come up short compared to our holy, righteous God that we were created to be with and be like. And in his provision in Christ, coming, taking on flesh, taking on our sin and taking on our death and conquering it all through his resurrection, that is your promise. So surrender, call on Christ as Savior and King today and enter into hope, and let us journey together to grow in our understanding and life unto him. For all of us, your concern is today's purpose and tomorrow's promise. In Christ, you are loved, 
secure and more than a conqueror. In Christ, you are set apart for a holy purpose. In Christ, you know the end of the story so you can live with an incorruptible hope and an inordinate courage. Because you've been set apart and made new in God's perfect grace in Christ, you can live with purpose today, with a confidence and courage that your eternity is secure and your tomorrow is in God's hands. Let me pray. So God, we just surrender all to you, acknowledging you as good, acknowledging you as loving, or you are glorious and holy, or you are strong and unchanging and true. You are faithful. Lord, I pray, Lord, for all hearing this today, Lord, that first we would revel in all in the sacrificial, loving, glorious work of Christ we're coming to save. And that I pray, I pray for today to be the salvation of any of those that would need. Lord, for those that are in Christ, I pray this would remind us, Lord, that you are not against effort, but we are not left to earn your favor. We are not left to earn our peace. Your favor and our peace are given in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we would revel in the promise of Jesus and also, Lord, strive to make our own the purpose of Jesus, just as he has made us his own. So, Lord, we surrender. Give us unity in Jesus. Lord, use us to be a bright, shining light for the gospel today. Let us see creative and courageous ways to take the gospel to our neighbors and world. Lord, give us wisdom. We need it. We love you. We surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we love you. We pray you are well. We are better together for the glory of God. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Bye.